the accusation against Paul. And really, what I want to talk to you about today is a little bit about people. People are fascinating. Actually, people are fascinating beyond uh, all description in every possible sense of the, of the word in good ways and also in, in the other ways, too. <laughs> when, uh, just when you think that you have seen everything there is to see about people, look out because you'll see something new and fascinating. We're going to talk about people and what makes them tick. And honestly, you could probably use just about any book of the Bible to talk about people. The Bible is the book about people. But today we're going to look at the situation of a handful of people in the book of Acts chapter 24. The Apostle Paul, a guy named uh, Tiberius Claudius Felix, another guy by the name of um, uh, Ananias, who happens to be the high priest, a couple of his buddies who are not named, and a guy named Tertullius, who is a Roman, probably a Jewish orator. We're going to talk about them and look at the situation they're in and just uh, look at the Lord's hand upon the situation as it goes forward. The book of Acts is the historical account of God's amazing, amazing, amazing work in the world of men, directly following the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. It is the ground for it, the foundation of God's purpose at work in his people. And the reason I said amazing three times is because I think it's really difficult for us to truly understand and get a handle on the uh, fabulous nature of what God has done. I mean, as we look at the world today, all right, there's somewhere in the neighborhood of 2.2 billion people, 2.2 billion, that in one way or another identify themselves as the followers of Jesus on this planet. But it wasn't always that way. It started out with 120 people in one room in a, in a small city, a city of real no international consequence in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 2. The last half of the book of Acts is the historical account of the ministry of the Apostle Paul. In Acts chapter 24, again, we're jumping right into the middle. It's about 58 A.D., right in the middle of the first century. The Apostle Paul has been arrested again. And this time in the city of Jerusalem, he's being held by the Roman authorities in the city of Caesarea, which is their headquarters. And as we start chapter 24, Paul is waiting for his accusers from Jerusalem, uh, the religious leaders, to come and be specific with the Roman governor to outline their charges against him. Paul is... You know, I've been reading the Bible a long time, and uh, I just continue to get more and more impressed with the person of Paul, also known as Saul of Tarsus. And... Uh, the things I read, you know, God just uses them in my life. And I'm thinking, what, what it must have been to be around this man. Very interesting guy. Not too long before this situation in Acts chapter 24, he had actually been one of the Jewish religious leaders. He had been a, a, one, of the, one of the Pharisees. And he had actually been hard about the task of persecuting the followers of Jesus in Acts Chapter 8, verse 3, as he was called Saul at that time, Saul made havoc of the church 
entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. In uh, Acts chapter 26, verse 9, he says of himself, I indeed myself thought that I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Now, now, why did he think that? Why did he have this idea in his head that he had to go out and stop Christians? And the reason is he would, Paul was a part of this group called the Pharisees, all right? And the word Pharisee means ones set apart or those who are set apart. In other words, the separate guys, the holy guys. That's what they're trying to identify themselves as. We are the holy guys. And they were sincere about that for the most part. These Pharisee guys were really trying to stick to the law of Moses. And when Christianity became you know, evident and the teaching of Jesus went forth and this whole idea of salvation by grace, you know, this was like anathema to them. You know, all the red flags went off in their head and people like Saul of Tarsus had to do anything they could to stop this terrible, horrible heresy. They didn't understand that Jesus was God in human flesh who would come to earth to touch the lives of men and women. The problem was Paul was serving God according to his plan, not God's plan. That's really the the problem. Long about Acts chapter 9, an interesting thing happens to him. He's on his way to Damascus to throw Christians in prison or bring them bound back to Jerusalem. And he is knocked off his feet by this bright light. And to make a long story short, he has a short conversation with the risen Jesus Christ right there. And over the period of the next three days, his life changes dramatically, 180 degrees in the opposite direction. And God speaks to him. It's amazing. He goes from, basically, he says in in Acts 22, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering into prison men and women of those who follow Jesus, to Romans chapter 1, verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. And the interesting thing to us is that his experience coming to Christ is in some ways very, very similar to what has taken place in our lives. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ today, if you're a believer, you have experienced some of the same things that Paul did. Now, we recognize, you know, uh, things that we all have in common, that God himself has spoken to us. Uh, we have to realize that we have, we're, we're going in the wrong direction, and God has shown us that we need to follow his truth in the Bible. We may not have uh, been fighting and, and imprisoning Christians, and we you know, may not have had such a dramatic conversion, but those things, God speaking to us, recognizing that we were going the wrong way and that we need to follow God's teaching in the scripture. This is really the thing, God speaking to us, that makes our conversion experience different than someone that follows uh, philosophy or someone who follows or was uh, raised, perhaps, in a particular religious tradition. Before I was a Christian, I had all kinds of ideas about the supernatural world, and they've changed month by month, let me tell you. And I imagined that I was actually an intelligent person. I had a very vivid imagination. And I followed those ideas. Why? Because they appealed to me. I liked these ideas I was reading in interesting and strange books. And I thought that they were right. They made sense to me intellectually. That's why I followed. That's why people in the world do what they do, whether it is their philosophy of life 
or the method of business or their family practice or whatever it is they do. It makes sense to them. They think it's right. It seems plausible. It's dramatically to their advantage. They want to do it. That is not how I conduct my life as a Christian. I conduct my life as a follower of Jesus Christ, ideally, according to the teaching of the Scripture. Why? Because the Bible is the Word of God, and God has spoken to me through the teaching of the Bible. I know it is His Word. I do not rely on my opinion. I do not rely on my inclination. I try to not rely. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, Trust the Lord with all your heart. Don't even lean on your own understanding. And that's my rule of thumb. I should have that tattooed somewhere, except for, never mind. Um, God speaking to us. When God speaks to you from the Bible, he takes away all the question marks. You may not understand everything in the Bible. In fact, I'm sure that you won't. But you'll be able to identify the truth and you will know where to find it and you will know where it's from. And no person ever under any circumstance will be able to tell you otherwise. People can stand you on the corner of the street and tell you the Bible's not from God all day long and you will be unfazed. You will walk away giggling. Poor guy. Where did he get those weird ideas? No, I know the Bible's not from God. The Bible's written by men. And on and on and on. I'm sorry. You know? Had a friend. Came to church here for many years. Went, moved to New York and wanted to become a public school teacher. His name was Tom. Tom decided he was going to complete his credential at NYU. And he went to a class, NYU, took a class in comparative religion. The person who taught the class was a very amazingly genius, smart woman who read Akkadian and cuneiform. That's pretty rare. And she said, if you're a believer in the Bible, you need to check your faith at the door because you're going to be devastated when you come into my class. And boy, she made it her task to wipe out the faith of people who are Christians in great detail with a very systematic approach. My friend Tom called me on the phone. Oh, my gosh, what am I going to do? He's going crazy. He's turning there to hieroglyphics with quotes from the Psalms 5,000 years before and all this stuff. And so how does it on and on and on and on? She's given him all these arguments to dissuade him from the fact that the Bible's the word of God. She's not giving him the weak points to those arguments. Are there weak points? Of course there are. She's purposely and intentionally putting that argument forth in a way to best favor her argument. I talked to the guy for hours. I said, Tom, did God talk to you through the Bible? He said, well, yes. I said, what are we talking about here? And why? Don't be distracted. God has spoken to you through the Bible. The Bible is the word of God. Devote yourself to seeking his truth and not living according to your own inclination. We understand that Saul's transformation was pretty extreme. He even changed his name to Paul. And as busy as he was opposing the cross of Christ... He now became the point man for sharing the gospel of Christ. He taught, served at a church in Antioch of Syria, went on amazing travels, three different missionary journeys, took the message of Jesus' death on the cross and resurrection from the dead all through Turkey, crossed over into northern Greece, made it all the way down to southern Greece, corresponded with people in Rome. He was everywhere. Now, he believed he was serving God before 
when he was putting Christians in prison. He was doing good works to bring himself closer to God. How had he changed? What is it had changed his mind? Titus chapter 3 verse 5 says, When the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us through the washing of regeneration, renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. This is what the Bible teaches. This is what the Bible teaches. It is the total opposite of what religion teaches. Religion is always about you being good and doing good to make yourself acceptable in the sight of God. It's a dead-end street. You are never, ever going to be good enough to be acceptable by God. I know you think you probably will, but I'm telling you, trust me, it's not going to happen. There are people here today that are probably stuck on that broken record, trying to find a way to make themselves good enough. All the different religions of the world do the same thing. They dress it up in all kinds of interesting methods and traditions. This is the thing that said... Christ apart from empty religion. Again, Titus 3, 4, and 5. The kindness and love of God our Savior. That's Jesus. Not by works of righteousness which we have done. You didn't do it. You couldn't do it. You won't do it. According to his mercy, he saved us by the washing and regeneration of the Holy Spirit. This is not something that you accomplished. It's something God did and you accepted. You engaged in. Nobody understands religion better than this guy Paul. He had to earn God's approval by what? Killing people? Oh boy. The same way that radical Muslims need to earn the approval of Allah? Maybe not as extreme, but the same idea. Fixing yourself to be acceptable to God for the Hindu, for the Buddhist, in some parts of even the Christian faith. People are doing the same thing. Even your religious atheist or agnostic. And don't fool yourself. Atheism and agnosticism are religions, the religion of humanism, where human man is placed in the center of the universe. It is a religion. Even though this guy, Paul, you can understand why he is a practical problem to the religious leaders. They need, they need to have him removed. And back in chapter 24, you can understand why they are so focused to that purpose. They need to have him silenced. They want to see him dead, really. The practical problem, or one of their problems, is that Paul was born as a Roman citizen. And this actually put him under the protection of Roman law, even though he was Jewish. He's from the tribe of Benjamin. Even though he grew up in Jerusalem at the feet of Gamaliel, listening and being taught by the great rabbis. And so when the religious leaders tried to have him quietly beaten to death in a small riot, the Roman government intervened. Finding out that he was a Roman citizen, they protected him. The Romans allowed Paul to make a speech in the temple court there from the Antonia Fortress. I have no idea why they did that. It's the craziest thing. You know, there's a riot. You go in, you pull this one guy out that everybody's trying to kill. You tie him up. You're taking him off to jail, you're going to put him in a cell somewhere, and he says, hey, can I, excuse me, oh, what? Uh, I was wondering, can I talk to these people for a minute? Oh, okay, sure, fine. <laughs> what? 
I mean, that's totally God's intervention. You know, he stands there and talks to him in Hebrew for 10 minutes. And they didn't like it. It didn't go over too well. The next day, he goes to the Jewish council, stands up in front of another small riot erupts. And so uh, the commander, uh, uh, Claudius Lysias in, in uh, Jerusalem, takes him and they put him in the cell. And he's probably trying to figure out what to do with him. When they find out that there is actually a plot against his life, they send him to Caesarea right away. The, the Roman guard, cavalry guard, helps him escape the city under the cover of darkness. Here we are in chapter 24, awaiting further hearing, this time before the Roman governor. And this guy is named Felix, okay? Uh, He's another very interesting guy. And so look at chapter 24, verse 1. After five days, Ananias, the high priest, came down with the elders and a certain orator named Tertullius. And these gave evidence to the governor against Paul. People are people. I know that sounds pretty self-evident. People are people. This event is taking place, folks, about 25 years following the death and resurrection of Jesus. So this is not the same high priest that Jesus stood before. Uh, I'm sure the high priest and the elders were not pleased to make this trip. They were inconvenienced and grumpy about it. It's about 60 miles from Jerusalem. They hired this orator, this guy, Tertullius. He has a Roman name, but he could just as easily be a Jew that was a Roman citizen like Paul. These are intelligent people. These are people who have gone many years to uh, yeshiva, to the Jewish university. Uh, Probably most of these men coming with a high priest are people who have the Old Testament memorized word for word. This is what rabbis did before the creation of eyeglasses. Um, They have talents. People have talents. In fact, honestly, people have like amazing talents and abilities. They can build amazing things. It it blows my mind. Uh, They create amazing works of art, music, things that just take your breath away. They're so beautiful. Uh, People are able to put principles of learning and science to accomplish things that are sometimes hard to believe, but they do. It's true. But I want to tell you, for every good and noble and beautiful thing that any person can do, There is a dark, evil, destructive, and malignant ability on the other side. And this is not on display unless you're, you know, really into goth. Uh, It doesn't show up in the lives of normal, average people, but it's there. It's real. You want to know about that? Talk to somebody who does criminal defense for a living, and you can see it in their face. You can see the weight upon them. People are gifted in the doing of evil. Now, we all look pretty good, and we should. We work at it. We want to look good. You know, that's why we have mirrors in our houses that we stand in some more than others. And, but it's true. We want people, we don't want anybody to see us as selfish, vindictive, malicious, unreasonable. That's not who we are anyway, is it? Of course not. Uh, Sometimes that's not who we are. It's not certainly not who we think of ourselves as. Of course, in your life, when things get a little crazy and out of control, you react, but that's just because you didn't have enough sleep last night or maybe because you drank too much coffee, had too many Twinkies, too much sugar in the system. Does that for you? Maybe it's your, your Irish temper or your hot Latin blood or 
Maybe you're just uh, misunderstood. That's what it is. People think you're evil, but really you're good. Yeah. (laughs) One of the great talents that people have is taking their responsibility and putting it on other people. You know, no, it's not about me. It's about you. We learn how to do that very early on. Another talent people have is the ability to take something really simple and make it so complicated as to defy all understanding. People are gifted at this, making things too complicated. It's interesting, the world of people, things get very complicated very quickly. I talk to people all the time who find themselves in situations from which they cannot imagine a possible escape. And this is really the reality of the human condition. You see, you don't have to follow God with your life. You don't have to. You can do whatever you want. But if you choose not to follow the teaching of the scripture and the truth of Christ, you're going to find yourself in between that proverbial rock and a hard place. And if you go that way long enough, you will find no way of escape. And that's terrible and tragic because it's not, it's not what God has intended. Not every door in your life is clearly labeled danger, danger. For every person here today, any one of you in this room, with five bad decisions, you can destroy your life. Destroy your life and the lives of the people around you who love you. And you could probably do it in three if you really tried. And that's, that's a little terrifying. Some of you here are thinking, that's exactly where I am. And if that is, if that is where you are today, you need to remember Matthew eighteen eleven. Jesus says, the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. Isaiah chapter 42, 16, the Lord says, I will bring the blind by the way they did not know. I will lead them in paths they have not known. I will make the darkness light before them and the crooked places straight. These are the things I will do and I will not forsake them. You serve a God of hope. And why does God do this for us? To help us turn our destroyed lives around in spite of all the evil that we have done and all our failures. The Bible says that he loves us. Now, I know you think you understand what that means when I tell you that God loves people. God loves you, and obviously he loves you because you're good. But all those other people out there, God loves them, loves them. And when you say God loves in the same sentence, you're saying something powerful, something amazing. God loves them. God loves people. One of the reasons that you and I need to be so cautious and wise as we deal with people, because every time I talk to a homeless person, every time I talk to somebody that I find insignificant, and there are people in your life and in my life that we find of no significance, they're not worth our time or energy. You know, I don't, shouldn't even have to talk to you. This is the reality of who we are. God loves those people. He loves them dearly. I always told my kids as they were auditioning for people to marry, ooh, that sounds bad. <laughs> that's not at all what happened. <laughs> as they were thinking about preparing to get married, that's better. I like that better. Ooh. 
Um, I told them, if you want to know whether you should marry somebody, watch the way they treat people that are unimportant to them. Because someday you will be that person. Good rule of thumb. If you're going to get married, keep it in mind. The Bible says he totally loves us. So much so that he came into this world and let men nail him onto a piece of wood. And he died there so that we could be with him. Even though Paul is not in this situation for any bad decision that he has made, his circumstance is totally at God's direction. Still, let's face it, he's in a very bad place to be. He's in a first century prison under the Roman occupation of of Judea. Often for Christians, the place where God has placed you is not the place that you would choose for yourself. Let me say that again. Often for Christians, the place where God has placed you is not the place you would choose for yourself. You may have had this experience at some time. And we all desperately need that confidence that God is able to get us from point A to point B. That is, from the terrible trial of where we are to the place where we see the benefit and how God used this hardship for good. Because when we get over there, it's all gravy. Once we understand. Every person will at some time find themselves in a situation where only God can help. There are some scrapes that you can get yourself out of, or so you might think. And there are others that you have zero tools to be able to affect the outcome. We all find ourselves in that place from time to time. If you are not there today, you will be. It's not a bad place, it seems like, because you don't have any control. It's not a bad place because it's the place that brings you close to the Lord. It's the place that brings you to your knees. You don't like it again because you don't have control. All the more reason to willingly, in advance, place yourself in the Lord's hands by choice. People would say, you know, I would, I would follow the Lord totally, but I'm afraid God wants me to do something that I really don't want to do. Hey, let me clear that up for you. He will absolutely ask you to do all kinds of things that you don't want to do. So now you know it's not a secret or a maybe anymore. He will do that. Do you think that Paul is overly pleased at his situation? Not likely. I mean, as the high priest came down uh, to see him, or rather before he left Jerusalem, there were 40 men who took an oath they wouldn't eat or drink anything until they killed him. He's not winning any popularity contest with the Jewish people. And he loves, this guy loves the Jewish people in Acts chapter, or rather in Romans chapter 9 and 10. He just goes on and on about how he so desires to see the Jewish people saved. He wants nothing for them but God's blessing. Unfortunately, the Jewish people are people, just like us. They're subject to all the twisted thinking that all men have. Their leaders are the same. These Jewish leaders, the people to whom Jesus said in John eight forty four, you are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources. He speaks his own native language, and he's a liar and the father of it. Now, 
Question. Did Jesus say this to the religious leaders because he hated them? Not at all. He told them the truth about who they were and who they were serving because he loved them. Now, people are not accustomed to hearing the truth. They don't know what to do with it. And this is really, I mean, it's such a tragedy because God himself put the leadership of the Jewish nation in order back in the book of Exodus. But people are people. In the passage of time, any organization made of people, there is a corruption. And when corruption reaches a certain level, it destroys the body, just like a disease. In 12 years' time, from Acts 24, in 12 years' time, the temple in Jerusalem will be wiped off the face of the earth, will cease to exist. To this very day, there is no temple in Jerusalem. The foundation of the worship of the Jewish people. People ask me, well, what do the Jews do in synagogues? <laughs> Sit around. They do astrology. I mean, not in, not in Hasidic or ultra-Orthodox sections. They do... Uh, I have a Jewish friend who actually is using crystals for healing. They do the New Age. They do all kinds of crazy stuff. They sit around on Yom Kippur praying that their good deeds will outweigh their bad. This is dead. It's empty. Why? Because the foundation of the Old Testament worship of the Jewish people is predicated on the sacrifice of the temple. And they have no temple. They have plans. They have plans to rebuild a temple, and I'm really hopeful none of you will be here to see it because it's one of the last prophecies before the return of Christ, and I want us all to be coming back with him. So Paul waited five days for his hearing with the Roman governor. The high priest came down, the elders came down, this orator, Tertullius. The governor, having heard only the report from the commander in Jerusalem, orders that the Jewish leaders uh, that are accusing Paul come to the city of Caesarea. They do it. People are liars. People are liars. Try to remember that. Look at verse 2. When he was called upon, Tertullius began his accusation, saying, Seeing through you we enjoy great peace and prosperity, and is being brought to this nation by your foresight, we accept it always and in all places, most noble Felix, with all thankfulness. Nevertheless, not to be tedious to you any further, I beg you to hear by your courtesy a few words from us. Wow, this guy. You know, bumper stickers are one of my favorite sounding boards for contemporary culture. You run across, if you, if you do run across an interesting bumper sticker, tell me about it. I'm curious. Um, one of my favorite ones I saw some years back in Hollywood, it said, save the environment, kill yourself. That's great. Very appropriate. Uh, Another of my favorite bumper stickers is totally appropriate to the situation here in Acts chapter 24. I know you're lying because I can see your lips moving. Whoever came up with that idea, I'm sure they have this guy Tertullius in mind. He is a terrible liar. Or, Or maybe he's a very good liar. Either way, it's a mess. It is customary in this kind of a court situation with the Roman governor, to begin the accusation before the authority with some flattering acknowledgement of the person of authority. Even if you look at Paul's address as he begins in verse 10, he says a few kindly words to the governor Felix as he makes his defense. 
The scripture tells us that we are to observe customs and authorities. Paul says the same thing. Romans 13, 1, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. The authorities that exist are appointed by God. And so even if it's an ungodly authority, which this guy, Felix, totally qualifies, he's an ungodly authority, again, with the provision that in honoring authority, we don't sin against God, we don't contradict our own conscience. Paul doesn't. He's very brief. How this guy, Tertullius, is really, I mean, he's a piece of work. Notice here in, in two, the second part of verse two, seeing that through you we enjoy great peace and prosperity is being brought to this nation by your foresight, we accept always and in all places. Most noble Felix. Now, for you or me, reading this with no background information, it sounds like, wow, this guy, Felix, he must be a pretty great governor. Hey, nothing could be further from the truth. This guy is a walking nightmare. He really is. I mean, Judea had a difficult time. Just before Felix took over as governor, they had a terrible famine under Claudius Caesar. But Felix's M.O. was to overcome civil unrest and cultural problems with brute force and violent repression to the extreme. And he did this with some serious skill. You don't, I mean, honestly, I'm not expecting you guys to understand what that means practically. But the Roman authorities had the right to take people's lives on the street if they needed to, if they weren't Roman citizens and they didn't have any political clout. And you were a problem, I could take you out on the spot, leave your body there and walk away. No problem. This guy left wreckage of innocent people dead in the streets and people crucified along the roads everywhere in Judea. Not the kind of neighborhood you want to raise your kids in. Which is a little bit ironic because his name, Felix, means happy. And I don't think the Jewish people were happy to have him as their governor. He was responsible for some effective policy that took care of crime. But according to the first century historians Josephus and Tacitus, this guy was a nightmare. His methods were overreaching and abusive to make the problem really of no consequence. In other words, the illness was bad, but the medicine will kill you for sure. I'm sure that Paul had some idea what to expect from these men. This was not his first rodeo. He'd he'd been in Roman jails before. He'd appeared before Roman authorities. The thing, or really a couple of things, that make this situation interesting for Paul. Paul knew that whatever the outcome of this hearing might be, that he was, at least at some point, going to go to Rome. For the part, as a part of this proceeding, as it turns out, it was going to take two years before he, he went. But the Lord already told him that he was bound for Rome. And I'm sure that took some pressure off of him. The other thing is sitting in, in the place of the prosecution of the high priest. High priest, the official of the Jewish people, having received his authority in the direct line from Aaron some 1,500 years before And all his life, Paul has looked up to and revered these men. He believed them to be serving God, only to find out that they were, in fact, serving their own interests. That had to be hard. You spend enough time with people, you learn. You'd like to think that people would listen to reason, that they would hear words of sober truth. But the truth is, people like their own ideas. They really like their own ideas Look at verse 5. We have found this man a plague, 
a creator of dissension among all the Jews throughout the world, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, and we seized him and wanted to judge him according to our law. I guess that's what that riot was where they were beating him to death. But the commander, Lysias, came and with great violence took him out of our hands, commanding his accusers to come to you. By examining him yourself, you may ascertain all these things of which we accuse him. So Tertullius launches out into this accusation against Paul. And he uses some pretty creative language to do so. We have found this man a plague. Really interesting, I think. He uses, you know, the... the word for a disease, indicating that Paul's conduct and his ideas were contagious. And he's, he's right. They were, and they are. The gospel of Jesus is the most powerful and contagious idea ever set upon the human race, partly because it's true, and even though there are people who wish it was otherwise, partly because in the heart of every single human person, there is a spark of recognition when they hear the truth of Christ and the witness of the Bible that the record of prophecy fulfilled throughout the ages, the words of what is to come to pass. Somewhere inside, people know it's true. Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. And when you shine the light of Christ into the lives of people, there is a recognition, there's, there's a connection. They can't deny it. I can remember to this day having people tell me about Jesus and just feeling this knot in my stomach. And I didn't know why. You see, I knew it was true. I just didn't know that I knew. But I did. People are complicated. They call him a creator of dissension among all the Jews throughout the world. Now, this is something they're really hoping will appeal to the governor to his Roman sensibility. The guy creates havoc everywhere he goes. And there is some truth to this charge. I mean, think in Ephesus chapter 19 of Acts, uh, they almost told, tore down the public amphitheater in, in Jerusalem. There were two riots, one minor, one major. In a majority of other places where Paul went, at some point, there was an upheaval that took place. Now, Paul never went into a community trying to create a problem or trying to start a riot. He himself was arrested. I'm sure it didn't surprise Paul. Jesus told him what to expect. Matthew 10, 17, Beware of men, for they will deliver you up to the councils, scourge you in their synagogues. You will be brought before governors and kings for my namesake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. So, I mean, today, folks, we pray for our brothers and sisters all over the world in the Sudan, in Thailand, in Burma, in Iran. And we realize that the day could very well be coming when we will all be on the receiving end of that same treatment. We need to be ready. He charges him as a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. And this is actually the only place in the scripture where the word Nazarenes is used to identify Christians. Jesus is called a Nazarene. Matthew 2.23, but this is the only other place. And they may be using this word as a reference to cast some shade on believers as Nazareth is not particularly well thought of. It had to be something for Paul 
he had to be pleased to agree with the fact that he is a ringleader of the sect of the followers of Jesus. To most people in Roman government at this time, it would have had very little information. In fact, until about 135 AD, Christians all over the world, the Roman world, were considered to be Jews. You know, I'm a Christian, I follow Jesus. Oh, you're one of those weird Jews, you know. Even if you were a Gentile, you followed Jesus, you were a member of a sect of a Jewish religion at that time. In 135, things changed. There was a revolt in Israel and a big mess, and uh, the Jewish people were ideologically divorced entirely from Christianity at that point in a powerful way. And that's really also about the time that serious Roman persecution against Christians began. Before that time, Nero was about the only Roman, and he was probably demon-possessed. That's why he persecuted Christians the way that he did. We later learn that this guy, Felix, the government governor, has some background and information concerning the teaching of Jesus. We don't know specifically, but he spent, again, about two years talking to Paul, so he got a lot more. He was very accountable by the time Paul left. Finally, in verse 6, he says, he even tried to profane the temple. We seized him, wanted to judge him according to our law. Now, this charge is in reference to the accusation that was made by certain men from Turkey, the Roman province of Asia, in Acts 21, 28, they cried out, Men of Israel, help this man, speaking of Paul, who teaches all men everywhere against the law and against this place. And furthermore, he also brought Greeks into this temple and has deviled this holy place. Absolutely not. He did not do that. He did not do what Tertullius is accusing him of. But to be honest, in terms of speaking against the law, of Moses and the temple, he kind of did that. I say kind of because he is teaching people, teaching the Jews and the Gentiles, wherever he goes, that the law and the temple were just a shadow of the things that God has intended, the things of Jesus Christ. And any Orthodox Jew would have said, wow, you're speaking against the law. They would have convicted him on the spot. If these guys really had their stuff together, they would have had copies of Paul's letters to the Romans and Galatians and would have nailed him to the wall on that issue. They don't. They don't even mention it because, honestly, the Romans are not going to care. Their best hope to prosecute Paul is that Felix will feel some pressure to scratch their backs politically and in, in this issue and that they will take up the challenge of the activist judge, something we're all too familiar with, and will create a precedent to inhibit upheaval around the empire, even though it's not really Paul's fault by any stretch of the imagination. He didn't go into these places to create riots. Who knows what this guy will do, this Roman guy? And the answer is God knows. God knows exactly what he's going to do. You know, folks, in this world, we hope for justice. Recently, not too long ago, there's uh, somebody in the church here, older person, on a fixed income, received a note from the water company, you know, California uh, Board of Utilities, etc., saying that, you know, we've dramatically underestimated your water usage over the last six months. You now owe us $2,000. And so she called them up on the phone and said, I, I don't understand. You know, I don't have the money to pay this. I don't, you know, I can't. How, how did I use water? How do you know I used water? 
et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And they said, oh, you know, we're the Public Utilities Commission. Click. That's it. You like water? Would you like to have some more water? I have become accustomed to water through the years. And so I, I do kind of like to have it now and again. We would like to have justice. We would like to have justice. Every one of you in this room knows justice. You know what it is. Especially when it's, you're getting the opposite in your life. You, you're like, that's not justice. And you know, to be fair and honest, justice has very little to do with our legal system. Unfortunately, our legal system is operated by people, by normal people like you and I, who even under the best circumstances, trying to do their very best, they're not equipped to provide real justice for any other person. Even when you try your very, very best, the best you're liable to do is overcompensating in one direction or in another, trying to avoid dramatic injustice, which is not Justice. Justice is what is right and perfect. And there's only one person capable of, of giving us justice, and that is God. Not that I want justice. I don't. I want grace and mercy. You know, I'm not looking for justice, but justice is planted in the hearts of people. When a person comes to me and they explain their situation, I have no idea what they're thinking. I have no idea. See, God knows exactly what every person is thinking. I have no idea. I have no idea what a person's motive is. For years, as a very young man, I thought people couldn't fool me. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's pretty dumb. <laughs> people can fool anybody. Anybody. And some people are gifted. Whew. Unbelievably gifted. It's amazing. I have no idea what the motives of people are. People often have no idea what their motives are in any given situation. And because we are so dramatically handicapped, we can say with absolute certainty that the only time real justice ever takes place in the world of men is one, by divine intervention. The only time real justice happens or completely by accident, which is also divine intervention. Justice is not the native inhabitant of the human world. In our day, it's an alien issue from far outside our experience. And even though we may understand the concept all too clearly and envision it and hope for it and appeal to the reality, real justice is the domain of our creator who by his nature can do nothing that is not completely and entirely right and just. So remember... When you stand in front of people seeking the right outcome, you're on very thin ice. There may be no other human authority that you can go to, but you can appeal to God. And you see, that's so important because when you trust in God, he has the ability to turn the injustice of man to your advantage if you trust him. And you see, Paul knows this. And it has to be a comfort to his heart. Second Timothy 4.18, he says, The Lord will deliver me from every evil work and preserve me for his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. It's interesting thing about Paul in this hearing is that he really has nothing to lose. And he knows the answer that the Lord is the one who's working on his behalf. 
He appeals to God and not to men. In fact, if anyone is in danger of being judged here, it's Felix and the religious leaders and this guy Tertullius. And I'm sure Paul was concerned for their eternal situation of these men. And like most men, they are ignorant of the facts. People will answer to God. These Jews assented, maintaining that these things were so. Now, what that says in verse 9 is that the chief priest, the high priest, and the elders agreed with this guy, Tertullius, that these things are so. The word Jews, we use it to refer to anybody who's a child of Abraham, children of Israel, basically. And technically, it refers to people from the tribe of Judah, But even in the Bible, in the New Testament, especially in the Gospel of John, Jews can be a reference to religious leaders, those in Jerusalem. The high priest Ananias and the members of the council, which have traveled for this hearing, are agreeing and confirming, bearing witness that the things which this man Tertullius has said, they are true. They are not true. They are false. They are bearing false witness right out of the Ten Commandments. They are taking the name of the Lord in vain by implication. Now, you might say, well, golly, these kind of things happen all the time in our world. It's true. I mean, I read every week about pastors in Eritrea or Somalia, India and Pakistan, where they're arrested and imprisoned for forcibly converting Muslims or Hindus to faith in Jesus. And I know that this is untrue. Jesus has no interest in any person being intimidated or pressured in any way to confess faith in Christ. I mean, basically, God wants you to do what you want to do. He just wants you to do what's best for you. So this man, Tertullius, paid orator, he answers to the people who hired him. He will also answer to God. He has a conscience somewhere in there. This man, Felix, the governor of Judea, answers to Caesar, but he also answers to God And we'll find out a little bit later in the narrative that he knows a little bit about the way of Christ and he is responsible for what he knows. But here in verse 9, as the high priest and his council agree to the charges against Paul, they have actively put themselves in a position of opposing the work of God, actively seeking to undermine the work of God. Now, I imagine it was an easy thing for them because they had been in the practice of compromising the Lord's truth for a long time. Compromise is dangerous, especially when it comes to the Lord. Subtle, it's sneaky, it's as serious as a heart attack. No one should take that lightly. But to be the representative of God, the high priest, the guy who wears the turban with the gold plate on the front that says, Holiness unto the Lord, who goes into the Holy of Holies to sprinkle blood on the mercy seat once a year on the Day of Atonement, and to bear a false witness against a person who is serving God with his life. That, my friends, that is a terrifying thing. To sin against God who is the inventor of consequences, temporal and eternal, and he knows how to use them. Not a thing I want to know about. We look at the world around us, and if we're busy or distracted, most of the time things seem to be fine. Folks, things are not fine. The things taking place in our world today, if I were to take the time to tell you in detail or to show you videos and explain, not one of you would be able to eat lunch after the service. 
The men and women of our world have utterly lost the fear of God. What does that mean? It means for a person to be utterly and completely without regard for the truth of a situation, unconcerned about consequences and concerned only with the cosmetic, superficial accountability to what people think. It doesn't matter what people think. There is only one opinion that matters. And we will all stand in front of him and answer for our lives. People are so confused about the truth, they can't be sure what the meaning of is, is. Remind yourself, as long as you have breath, no one ever gets away with anything. No one ever gets away with anything. The very best that we can hope for is to be forgiven. But for that, we have to admit our responsibility. John 9.39, Jesus said, For judgment I've come into the world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may be made blind. Then some of the Pharisees who were there heard him say these words, and they said to him, Are we blind also? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin, but now you say, We see. Therefore, your sin remains. Jesus spoke this way to the religious leaders because he loved these people, because he needed them to hear the truth, even if it was just for one moment to get a clear perspective of who they were and and where they were, and to listen to the voice of God and not to the voices of men. First John 1 John 1.5 says, This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, We have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. People are people. Good and evil, but God truly loves them, amazing as it is. People are liars. The Lord knows who we are better than we do and his purpose will be accomplished in spite of us. People like their own ideas and there is a way that seems right to a man And the end of that way is the way of death. People will answer to God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. God help us. I'm sure the Apostle Paul was frustrated at the situation he was in. I'm sure it was awkward and difficult and taxing. I have no doubt that he wanted God to get him out of that place. But he had confidence in God that there was a larger purpose at work. He had confidence that God was larger than his frustration and his fear. In April of 1945, a man by the name of James F. Doris Jr. was in Germany, attached to the 222nd Regiment of the U.S. Army Company A. And he was part of a detachment that was tasked with liberating some kind of a prison camp in Germany. They didn't know what kind of a prison camp, but they found out. It was called Dachau. When James arrived, the first thing he saw was a train of 40 boxcars that had been filled to capacity with prisoners. Moving east as the Allies advanced from the west to keep them out of the hands of the Allies, they were filled with men and women who had been kept in there without food or water 
for four days. And then as the Germans retreated at the end, they opened up the doors and machine gunned the remaining living people who were in those boxcars. James said he could smell the burning bodies from miles away, and as he approached the barbed wire fence of the camp, he said the people looked like skeletons. He thought to himself, this is hell. And he prayed. And he prayed, God, get me out of here. Get me out of here. A man approached him and motioning, asking if he had a cigarette. He did. Actually, he had two brand new packs of cigarettes in his coat. But he thought, this man looks like he's dead. If I open up a new pack of cigarettes right here, there's going to be a riot. And so he told the man, no, no, I don't. He said the little fellow limped off, motioning for him to stay. And he came back with an old rusty can, looked like it had been buried in the ground somewhere. And out of it, he produced the oldest, dirtiest, water-stained half a cigarette you ever saw in your life. And he wanted to share it with James to celebrate. James was ashamed. And at that moment, he realized that God had sent him there to help these people. God has sent you here for a purpose. Do you know what it is? It's getting late. You need to figure it out. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we come before you in the name of Jesus, Lord. We want to thank you, Lord, for the grace that you have lavished upon our life. Father, you have, you have blessed us. Even, Lord, those of us that are struggling and in difficult circumstances, we may not even see it, Lord, but you have blessed us, Lord. You have preserved our lives. And, Father, you've given us an opportunity to be your servants. Even in the smallest way, Lord, you've made a way for us. Help us, Lord, to take a hold of your purpose. Help us, Lord, to see your plan, and, Father, to conduct ourselves according to your plan, and, Father, to be confident in your ability and not our own. Lord, we want to love you according to the purpose you've intended. We want that, that love to work in us, Lord, to affect us and change us. And, Lord, to open our understanding, to open the eyes of our understanding to see your hand at work in every possible way. As we're all praying together and every head is bowed, if the Lord has spoken to you today and you have never given your life to Christ to follow him as your personal Lord and Savior, I want to give you an opportunity here at the end of this service. If the Lord has spoken to you through his word and you have a desire to surrender your life into his hands, to follow him, to belong to Jesus Christ, I want to ask you to repeat this prayer after me. Father, I come to you in the name of Jesus. I want to ask you to forgive me for all of my sins. I believe that Jesus died for my sins on the cross. And I believe that he rose from the dead. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Give me a new life in Christ. And bless me as your child. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.